0: Well, as we join our friends in the Community Life Center, I want to invite you uh, to turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter, as we continue our look at the I Am sayings of Jesus. But while you look for that, and before we go any further, I want to take a moment to step aside for a second and introduce you to someone, someone you already know someone named Fran. Fran is actually an acronym that stands for friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. These are people you already know in each of these categories. And over these next few weeks, we are going to encourage you to invite Fran to church. When you leave worship today, you're going to be given a small card that has the name of Fran on it, and beside each of those letters, you will be invited to write down the names of people you know in those categories, and we are urging you to take that card home with you and to pray specifically for Fran, and don't just pray in a vague sort of way, but to pray in a very specific way. We want to pray that God will open the door for you to have a conversation with Fran over these next few weeks so that between now and the 1st of December, you will have the opportunity to invite them to come to church with you. Study after study after study has shown that the single most powerful and effective means of church outreach is a personal invitation to somebody from someone they already know. We can build new buildings, we can launch new worship services, we can dream up innovative new ministries and programs, and all of that has its place. But by far and away, the single most powerful way of outreach is to simply offer someone a personal invitation. And the good news is, that's something we can all do. You don't have to take a special course in evangelism to simply say, hey, would you like to come to church with me? But we want you to pave the way for that invitation through a time of devoted and specific prayer for the people who are within these categories. We are calling this initiative Fran Plus One by Twelve One. By December the 1st or shortly thereafter, we are asking everybody to prayerfully consider how you can invite someone to come to church with you. And don't just say, hey, show up at church next Sunday. Say, hey, I will come get you and bring you, or I will meet you there. I will go with you. I will be your partner so that you'll know where to go and what to do. And like I said, as you leave worship today, you'll be given one of these cards. Take it home, write the names down, Pray daily for these individuals. Pray that God will open the door. I believe that as we move into the month of December, people's hearts and minds are going to be more open than you might otherwise find at other times of the year to spiritual conversations. There's still enough cultural emphasis on Christmas and the holidays, and I believe that if we're prayerful and strategic, we can capitalize on that. So pray and invite Fran to church with you, and we'll see what God does with that. Now, having said that, let's turn our attention back to the Gospel of John, and I think you'll see there is actually a bit of a connection between that and the Scripture that we're going to read. We're continuing to look at the I Am statements of Jesus, these declarations that He makes about Himself and what His ministry is all about. We're coming near the end. This is the sixth of the seven statements. It comes in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let me invite you to follow along. Jesus is speaking with his disciples here. It's the night he is to be arrested. This is their final hours together, and here's what he has to say. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, on a a recent family trip, we were busy looking up directions on a smartphone when my youngest daughter asked one of those questions she loves to ask. Dad, she said, what would we do if it was, let's say, after dark and we were lost and all our cell phones died? She asked it with a tone of horror as though such an impossible scenario had never happened in the history of man. And I mustered up all the fatherly wisdom I could and said, Well, I guess we just have to take a paper map out of the glove box and open it up and figure out things for ourselves. A map, she said. We haven't owned one of those as long as I've been alive. And she was right. We have become totally dependent upon GPS to get where we're going. Nowadays, we get in the car and we don't have to figure out our route before we leave the house. We just start driving and the friendly voice inside our phone tells us where and when to turn. But that doesn't change the fact that a sense of direction and destination is critically important even to the most basic functions of life. Without them, We simply cannot operate. Imagine for a moment trying to go to the grocery store or to your child's school or, for that matter, to work if you didn't know where those places are. Now, if it's impossible to imagine that, that only proves my point. We have an assumption that knowing where we're going is necessary for daily life happen we got to know where we're going if we're going to know how to get there direction destination these things are built into the human way of thinking about life I think that's one of the reasons the life of Jesus remains so compelling today Even amongst non-believers and skeptics, there's still a fascination with the life of Jesus. And I think it is in part because Jesus lived with such a clear sense of purpose and direction. Whatever individuals may believe about him, one thing that cannot escape our notice is that Jesus always seemed to know where he was going. And everything he did was pointing in that direction. You've seen the bumper stickers that says we should practice acts of random kindness as though goodness just kind of happens by accident along the way but there was nothing random about Jesus's life everything he did every sermon he preached every miracle he performed it was all pointing somewhere now this gets expressed differently depending on which gospel you are reading at the moment if you were to take Luke's gospel for example In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And from that point forward, everything that happens, happens as he's on the way to Jerusalem. There's this clear sense of direction. That's where he's going, and it's all pointing that direction. John's gospel, which we're in today, portrays it a little bit differently, or at least gets there in a different way. According to John's telling of things, Jesus actually made multiple trips to Jerusalem over the course of his lifetime, but over one-third of this gospel consists of the events that happen in the final hours of his final visit there. And there's this very clear sense that things are building towards a climax, and Jesus knows it. Nothing about the coming crisis, not his arrest, not his betrayal, not the mockery and torture, not even his crucifixion. None of that comes as a surprise to Jesus. This is what he's been moving towards all along. Every step he has taken has been moving him there with intentionality and purpose. Jesus' life is a story of destination and direction. That's very good news. Because so is the human story, or at least so should it be. Scripture paints a very clear picture that we were built with a clear purpose and with a specific destination in mind. There's nothing accidental about our lives. We were put here for a very specific reason, and it can be stated simply as this. We were created for the purpose of partnership And fellowship with God. That's the sum total of our reason for existing. We were put here to know God and to live in communion with Him. You can take all of the complexities and all of the ambiguities and all the muddle and the mess of our human life. And that's really what it comes down to. We were created for partnership and fellowship with God. It gets expressed very poignantly in the opening lines of Scripture. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis 1 tells us that we were created in the image of God. That's a privilege that doesn't belong to any other created thing. In other words, our high calling as human beings is to reflect the glory of God back to creation. There's something unique about our identity as human beings. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that we were created to work the garden, if you will, that we were charged with being God's agents in caring for his creation. In other words, we are co-laborers with him, stewards of what he has placed in our care. Put it together and we have this beautiful image of human beings created to live in partnership with our creator. That image comes through very poignantly in Genesis 3 verse 8 when we read about God coming to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That tells us everything we need to know about why we were here. We were created for that kind of intimate friendship and partnership with God. The problem is we have rejected that purpose and we have denied that destination. As a human race, we decided we didn't like that destination and decided that we could find our own way to an even better outcome. And we have been lost ever since. Genesis 3 tells us about the fateful choice Adam and Eve made to follow their own instincts and to pursue a different path than the one God put them here to walk. Why did they eat the forbidden fruit? It was because it held out a promise for them that if they, force, if, if, if they took of this, of this forbidden fruit, it would grant them godly wisdom and knowledge and that they would have godly insights, and that they would no longer need that partnership with God because their lives could become ends unto themselves. And so they took and they ate. And as a result, we have lost the fellowship we were created to enjoy. Genesis 3 verses 23 and 24 tells us the ugly truth of what happened next. Here's how the text puts it. It says, so the Lord God banished him, speaking of Adam, the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now let that troubling image sink in for a moment. Cut off from the tree of life. Banished from the garden by a flaming sword that won't let us back in. That image tells us everything we need to know about everything that is wrong with us. Every problem that plagues us. Every broken relationship. Every bad decision we make. Every failed dream every conflict and every war, every worry and fear that keeps us awake in the middle of the night, every tear we shed, it is all because we have lost our way back to the tree of life. To use the biblical image, we've been cut off from the garden and we are living out here east of Eden, And we are estranged now from that one most important relationship we were created to enjoy. We have lost our way home. And the entirety of the human story is just the story of one failed attempt after another for us to find our own way back. Trouble is, we don't know where home is anymore. We have rejected that destination and have chosen another one. And as we've already said, if we don't know where some place is, we're not going to be able to find our way how to get there. And so there's our human dilemma. Lost, exiled, stuck out here in the wilderness east of Eden, knowing that this isn't where we belong, but clueless how to find our way back. But here's the really good news. The Bible does not end with Genesis chapter 3. It could have. God very well could have said, "Eh, well, that didn't go so well, never mind, we're done with that. In fact, if you read on a few chapters later, He comes real close to saying that. That's what the whole story of Noah is about. But here's the thing, God is so in love with what He has created. More than that, God is so in love with who He has created that he cannot bear to leave us out there in exile for all eternity with no way home. And so God sets about a plan to invite us back. And little by little by little, God starts laying out the signpost. He starts putting out the markers to point our way back to where it is we're supposed to be. And that signpost, that map, that direction, it gets laid out little at a time. God knows we're so lost that if he lays it all out at once, we won't be able to interpret it. But step by step, signpost after signpost, he starts pointing the way. It begins with the call of Abraham when he tells him to get up and leave the place that he's known and go to a place that God will show him so that through him God can create a new family and institute a covenant through which he'll call the world back to himself. That gradual unfolding begins through Abraham, then through Isaac, then through Jacob, then through the twelve patriarchs who come as Jacob's descendants who become the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. It carries forward through Moses and Aaron as he leads them out of slavery through the wilderness and into the promised land and in the giving of the covenant which lays out the laws and the regulations by which God's people are to live in this new path that they have been given. It carries forward through the prophets and the priests and the kings, all of whom reveal something to the people of what it is God desires for them. Now, each one of those chapters and each one of those characters could be explored in greater detail, but here's the point for us this morning. With each one, God is laying out another step, saying, Come to me, come to me, come to me. But the plan is not laid out in full. Until Jesus comes. Turns out that the entire Old Testament. Has been building to a point. Anticipating that which Jesus himself will fulfill. In the New Testament. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene. He brings about the full unfolding of God's plan to call the world back to himself. More than that. Jesus is the full unfolding of God's plan to call the world back to himself. In John chapter 1, we read that Jesus is the living word who not only was with God in the beginning, he was God in the beginning. Here's how John 1.14 puts it. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that last phrase is critical. He came from the Father. Jesus' life originates in God the Father The very God we were created to have fellowship with. He is from the Father because from the beginning he is one with the Father. And this means that he and he alone knows the true way back to the place we belong. All who came before him knew something about the way back to God. But Jesus in his person and in his life is the way back to God. He is the path back to the home we have lost. He is the way out of exile back into the garden we were created to enjoy. This is what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 14. The words we read a moment ago. Now again, to set the stage, uh, these words are are spoken on the final night of Jesus' life. He is about to be arrested in the coming hours. He knows that. He's anticipating it. And these, these final words that he's sharing with his disciples are a way of preparing them for what is to come. And understandably, the disciples are distraught when Jesus says he is about to go away from them. They've come to find something in him. They believe they have found life and truth in him. But now what's going to become of them once he's gone? Will it all come to nothing? Will something terrible happen to them? These are the questions they are beginning to wrestle with. And so Jesus, in these words that we've read a moment ago, speaks to reassure them. He tells them they have nothing to fear. Because he knows the death he is about to die will not be able to hold him. Jesus knows that the Father will call him back to life from the grave, and so so Jesus reassures the disciples that because of who he is, they will never lose their way again, because so long as they have him, they have the Father. So long as they have him, they not only have the way, they are in the way Jesus will always be with their way back to God because from eternity to eternity, he is one with God. So in John 14, verse 6, Jesus says these famous words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Why? Because you've seen me, Jesus says. And if you've seen me, you've seen as much as the Father as you will ever see on this side of eternity because I am one with him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is so critical, I believe, that we understand these words were spoken as a means of encouragement. Jesus was reassuring his followers that no matter what happens, if they are in Jesus Christ, they will never lose their way back to the Father because Jesus is that way. We need to hear those words as ones of encouragement because there is, I believe, a tendency to read these words from Jesus as though they are a pronouncement of bad news. When we hear Jesus say that he is the way, sometimes we read those words as though Jesus was in the way of the Father. As though his purpose is to block people from attaining God. We tend to treat Jesus like he's some sort of cosmic goalie who is there to keep people from making the connection with God and finding their way back home. But the exact opposite is true. Jesus is not in the way of the Father. Jesus is the way to the Father. His mission is to invite as many who will receive him back into fellowship with the God with whom he is one and from whom he has come. Now the sad truth is that there will be many who will reject that offer. But Jesus is there to invite them home nonetheless because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life he is not there to keep people from God he is there to draw people to God now what do these words mean for us what difference does it make sometimes this just gets put forth as some sort of abstract idea for people to debate but but is there any real world implication of this I want to briefly, in the moments we've got left, uh, mention uh, two things that should matter to us greatly about these words. First, these words from Jesus should serve to renew and restore our confidence in the gospel and in the mission of the church. If Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and if we truly believe that, then the work we have been given to do as the people of God is truly a matter of life and death. Because our mission, our calling, it has an eternal consequence. We need to restore and renew our sense of confidence in the gospel. It's helpful to remember that that John's gospel was written sometime after the events it records. And at the time John wrote, the church to whom he was writing and for which he was writing was undergoing a very difficult time. In the first century, the Christian church was mostly just this marginalized body out on the edges of society that were mostly regarded as a bunch of nuts and fruitcakes that nobody wanted to have anything to do with. They were mostly ignored, which was probably a good thing because when they did receive the attention of the authorities, it usually resulted in persecution. The church had no cultural influence, no political power. They were vulnerable, exposed, oftentimes in danger. Now, put yourself in their shoes. It would be very easy if you were living in that environment to begin to wonder if this thing that you've been called to do, this message you've been called to proclaim, was really worth the trouble. But John records these words of Jesus as a way of reassuring the people of his day that the task they had been given to do, the message they had been given to proclaim truly mattered because the one who had called them was none less than the way back to the Father. And here's the amazing thing. Armed with these words and the encouragement that they brought, that young church, although it faced all sorts of obstacles, not only survived it grew and by the close of the first century the tiny church had spread throughout the far-flung Roman empire how is that possible it's because the truth of these words energized them and motivated them to understand they had a message to proclaim and a and a mission to fulfill and they lived into it with fullness Now, our circumstances today are not exactly the same as theirs, but if you take a look around, you'll see that there are some growing similarities. Mainstream culture is increasingly indifferent to the message of the gospel and in some cases, openly hostile to it. We're a little sheltered from it here in the Roanoke Valley, but you don't have to look far to see That the world around us no longer is eager to embrace the message we've been given to proclaim. And it would be easy in that kind of environment to retreat back within the safe walls of our church and just focus on our comfort and safety and security as a congregation. We can never lose sight of the fact that the world on the other side of these walls is the very world that Jesus is calling back to the Father. This is the lost world that Jesus is trying to restore and renew. And the message that we have been given is the way he will do it. As crazy as it may sound, we are the people of God through whom Jesus is revealing himself to a lost world. And if we don't show them that way, then they will never see it. And so we need a renewed sense of confidence and urgency in the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we need to pray for our friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors and invite them to church. So that they can begin to hear the message of the one who is the way. Second, and just as important, if Jesus is the way, then his word should convict us to examine our lives to see if we truly are living in that way. When Jesus tells us he is the way, the truth, and the life, he isn't just giving us an idea to ponder or an abstract idea to debate with others. He is giving us a way of life to live. In the scriptures, this idea, this image of the way, it's often used to depict a pathway that you walk in life. It refers to a pattern of life that we follow. The ancient church modeled that for us. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, which tells the story of the conversion of Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, we see the church referred to as, quote, the way. It indicates that the people who comprised the church had a distinct way of life that set them apart from the culture around them. Their manner of speaking, their patterns of relating, their reputation for generosity, their readiness to serve, to serve even those who were hostile to them, their refusal to bend and bow to the changing gods of the whims of culture. These things were enough to identify them as people with a different and distinct way of life. They were, quote, the way. That burden of distinction now falls to us. If Jesus is the way, then we should make sure we are living according to that way. Are we living obediently to the things Jesus taught us? I don't think the church is going to make much ground in the ongoing culture war simply because we figure out how to scream louder than everybody else. There's a wonderful satirical website if you're ever looking for a little irreverent humor called the Babylon Bee. And I'll warn you before you go there, nothing you read there is true. It's all satire and humor. But a few weeks ago, there was a, a headline that came out with a false article that said, New research shows that screaming loudly at each other should certainly change everything any day now. That's how we tend to approach the debates in the world around us. The people outside our walls don't need us yelling at them. What they need is us modeling for them a distinct way of life that points them to Jesus. Do we strive for a life of purity? Do we speak the truth in a spirit of love? Do we look for opportunities to serve? Do we share generously and even sacrificially what God has given to us with others? Do we stand ready to forgive? Do we truly seek to know the heart of God as our highest priority in life? The way we answer those questions will determine whether or not we are able to point people to the way here's the gospel truth, the world around us is lost. It is in exile. The world has cut itself off from the God who created it. But the good news, the gospel news, is that God is at work calling that lost world back to Himself. He is not there to push people away from the Father. He is there to draw people to the Father because Jesus is the way back home. And believe it or not, that way leads through us. Let's pray together. Father God, continue to show us the way, continue to open our eyes and ears to see the way. We believe that in Jesus we have seen the way back home and now cause us to lay aside our pride, our stubbornness, our rebellion, our apathy, that we might receive him that we might follow him and that we might proclaim him. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Jesus is the way back to the Father. If you've never responded to that, then the first thing you must do this isn't me telling you this this is scripture straightforward the first thing we must do is acknowledge him as lord scriptures say that if we acknowledge that he is the son of god and if we believe that god has raised him from the son of dead from the dead we will be saved and so if you've never taken that step then as we sing here in just a few moments i would invite you to come forward and we'll celebrate as you begin that journey of faith if you've taken that step but, but you feel God leading you back through some way that you've wandered perhaps to connect with a church through membership and fellowship in a way you've never done we'd love to receive you if there's anything you need to make public any spiritual decision that God is moving you to make this morning then as we sing I'll be here and, and would just love to receive you and spend a moment with you but, but the call is to all of us to follow Jesus back home let's stand and worship him as we do that let's sing together